There was a time, let's say a hundred years or less, when genders were specific. Wives and mothers stayed at home to supervise the comforts of the family, while their menfolk took their duties as breadwinners seriously. They worked hard, and by way of relaxation, the working class would favour the local pub, while the middle classes enjoyed the solidarity of the men's club. The Jupiter Club was old, heritage-listed, solid and elegant. Yet it was about to take a step back in history. Within 12 months, the gender laws would insist women be admitted. But for now, it was a male sanctuary. Early one cold winter's evening, in a small inner-city suburb, a stranger entered such a club. He created a modicum of interest to the male gathering seated in twos or threes in quiet conversation. He made his way to one particular group who were obviously expecting him and very soon was involved in a deep conversation. You see, the mystery was not so much who the murderer was. There was only one suspect, or even why he had done it. He stood to gain a considerable sum of money. No, it was more a question of how he had done it. After all, he was virtually a paraplegic. The owner of the resonant voice made no attempt at privacy nor seemed even slightly awed at the sombre trappings of the room. He had been signed in as a guest of Michael Morrissey, once a well-respected journalist from Daywatch, who was unhappily now very deaf. Having gained Morrissey's attention, as well as the dozen or so of the club members present, the russet-faced visitor shifted his ample weight back into the comfort of the leather-bound chair, showing little interest in his covert audience. The speaker sat in thoughtful silence. Almost by open agreement, the remaining members began to quietly move their chairs in order to see and hear the visitor with greater ease. Papers and magazines fell to the floor and the club's usual formality was thrown aside as they all gathered more openly now to hear more from this entertaining gentleman. Morrissey looked at his companion quizzically. Can't say the case rings a bell. A Sydney case, was it? Sydney? Oh no. It occurred out due west of Brisbane, near what is now known as Brookvale, mid-1960s. And the population was far smaller then than it is now, of course. The murderer never came to trial, so I suppose it could be classified as unsolved in some ways. But every man, woman and child in the district knew most of the details. Well, you know how it was. Before the popularity of television, gossip was a good part of our recreation. The narrator nodded his head sagely, and for some reason, everyone nodded their heads too. The visitor took up his story again. Anybody here know Albert Lansbury? His voice boomed even louder, as for the first time, the speaker looked openly around the room, acknowledging the shaking heads. Well, that's not surprising. He died nearly 40 years ago, and was... He stopped suddenly as James Curtin, who was seated at the back of the room, scraped his chair against the linoleum in an effort to get closer. The others glared at him in silent reprimand. As I was saying... There was a moment's reflection to ensure there were no further interruptions. Just after the war, Albert Lansbury owned most of the property around those parts. Anything worth mentioning, that is. He lived with his wife and son in that monstrous double-storey house close to the highway. On the whole, the family kept themselves to themselves, fancied themselves, as fifth generation often do. Although many present were no doubt fifth generations themselves, nobody dared argue with this philosophy. Warmed to his tale, the storyteller went on confidently. 
They had only come into money since Lansbury's dad had made a bit through some funny dealings overseas, just after the war. And, like most people of the times, not trusting banks, he put it into land. It was the bankers present who now turned down their mouths, but again it was a noiseless rebuke. Well, from what we could gather, Lansbury himself was a bit of a tartar. You know, threw his weight around, literally. Especially with his wife, a mousy little thing called Ellen. Of course, he wouldn't be able to get away with it now. Not with all this women's lib stuff and Me Too protests, but it was different then. Once again, heads bobbed up and down in sombre agreement. A few present, no doubt, a little nostalgic for those politically incorrect days when men were masters of their own home. He and Ellen had met just after the war. He was suffering post-traumatic stress after long-term combat on the front and finished up at the Royal Brisbane. Ellen was his nurse. Kept on nursing him, if you ask me, almost from the time they got married. Made a proper slave of her, he did. In fact, word had it that he used to knock her about a bit after he'd had a few too many, and that was nearly every week. The room was beginning to dim as evening gave way to night, and a staff member who had come to check for drinks was ushered quickly on his way before he could take orders. Only when he had gone did the storyteller continue. They only had one child, Gregory, and the way things were at home, the lad left home and went overseas. Drifted for a while he did, tried his hand at most things, just to turn a buck, even tried show business. Fancied himself as a bit of a singer, I think. Of course, you have to remember... Lots of youngsters got tempted by the glamour of it all. It was all the rage in those days. At least the crooners of the 1950s had to have a voice. Those damn rock and rollers of the 60s couldn't hold a tune or play more than three chords. At this point, an odd smile could be seen on the faces of some of the more adventurous members of the club as they thought back to skiffle groups and rock bands, now long lost to youth. Well, the youngster must have had a bit of success because by the time he got back home here, he was able to headline a few local variety shows. Sports clubs, festivals, that sort of thing. Radio was still popular and television was in its infancy, but when it did take hold, well, that was the ruination of the theatres. The raconteur stopped talking momentarily in order to ensure that everyone agreed with him on the impact of this sociological observation. Anyway, Gregory was a bit weak-spirited and having too much money soon found himself at the mercy of the old amber liquid like his dad. He'd come back to visit his mother every few months and scared the locals out of their wits, charging around the roads in a little sparked-up roadster, half blotto most of the time. As if to add credibility to his tale, the guest took himself a good draught of his beer with relish, eased himself to a greater degree of comfort and continued. Most of Lansbury's income was made by controlling a group of building contractors, and by all accounts was none too popular with them either. Never offered any sick pay or recompense for working accidents and the like, and what with his missus hardly saying a word in town when buying groceries, and his young son hung over a good bit of the time, the family were left to themselves. The only visitors they ever had were the housekeeper, who came in most days, a gardener to do the heavy stuff, and me, when I delivered the post. Though, of course, I was only a youngster myself in them days. Interesting though this background family history was, the speaker could sense a certain restlessness stirring through his listeners. So, after allowing a suitable momentary silence for effect, reasserted his control of attention with the words, But as to the murder itself... A series of pistol-like shots resounded. Everyone jumped and looked around nervously. The room suddenly quiet with fear. 
The shots continued in rapid succession until Curtin gave a tense artificial chuckle. It's um, a few of the local Asian lads, I think. It's Chinese New Year or, or something. They've been letting firecrackers off all week. Nervous comments gave way to an exchange of mutterings, then all returned their gaze onto the narrator. Yes, you see, the murder was discovered about four o'clock one winter afternoon. Apparently Ellen went into the study, accompanied by Mrs Dawson, the cleaning lady, and found Albert Lansbury slumped over his desk with a silver letter opener sticking out between his ribs. Been there for hours, apparently. Nobody used to disturb him when he was there. As you can imagine, it was a nasty shock for the two women. And after they got over screaming and carrying on, one of them ran to tell Gregory, who was sleeping upstairs in the front bedroom. And the other went off to telephone for old Poulton, the local police officer. Well, naturally, a full-scale murder was a bit out of his line, so he soon called in the district inspector and they took over the case. But you said it was an open and shut case. Morrissey interrupted eagerly. Didn't you say that murder and motive were known? Yes, yes, well, of course. Once the district boys came in, they soon established it was an inside job. There had been a bout of cold weather, nasty winds and gales, so the doors and windows were closed and locked. No one had broken into the place, nothing stolen or anything like that. There had only ever been three people in the house at the time of the murder, and Ellen and Mrs Dawson had a cast-iron alibi with each other, polishing silverware all day, so they cancelled each other out. You can see, there was only one person it could have been, and he had a motive, being the only son and heir and all. But surely, you said the murderer was severely crippled. Yes, well that's the whole point. As I said, how did he do it? Our visitor sat forward, forcibly bringing home his point. Oh well, perhaps I forgot to tell you that by this time it was young Gregory who was completely confined to a wheelchair. A unified, ah, erupted around the room as everyone acknowledged a momentary glint of understanding before looking for further explanation from the speaker. Yes, Gregory had smashed his car and himself up on one of his drunken binges, forcing him to come home to live. He'd spent ages in hospitals and rehab centres, but eventually he realised there was no hope he could walk again. His parents set up a bedroom for him downstairs in the morning room next to the study. He had a nurse come in from the town a few hours weekly to see to the medical side of things. Lansbury had spent a fortune on what was a new contraption back then, an electrified wheelchair. Great cumbersome thing by today's standards, but Gregory could operate it with some difficulty by pushing the controls with his left hand. As you can imagine, it wasn't the easiest setup. Even in a loving family, it would have caused tensions. Albert Lansbury was used to Ellen fetching and caring for him, so he didn't take too kindly for her spending all her time with her son, who had already proved himself to be a wastrel at that. According to the housekeeper, there was always arguments and shouting going on between the two men, with poor Ellen fluttering around in the middle trying to keep the peace. So as I said, there was plenty of motive on Gregory's side. Hatred of his father, and of course, the money. Yes, a wrap-up case. The clock struck eight its echoing chimes resonating through the darkening room. Our visitor began to fold up his paper and collect his things, with obvious intention to move on. A general buzz of indignation went around the room as everyone looked to each other for confirmation that the tale was still unfinished. While not attempting to hide his frustration and irritation, Morrissey got up purposefully and stood right in front of the visitor, questioning. Wait a minute. Didn't you imply that when the murderer was found, the young son was in the upstairs bedroom? The big man looked up unfazed at the forcefulness of the remark. Yes. 
Yes, I did that. He settled back into his chair. Not that it was important. You see, Gregory's downstairs room had only recently been decorated, and the paint being fresh was still a bit smelly. It had been agreed that he would spend a week or so in one of the upstairs bedrooms, and his father had asked me to help take him and his wheelchair up to the top floor for a few nights. It was quite a job too, I can tell you, even though I was a strong lad at the time. Well, come on, man. If it was such a wrap-up case, how did he do it? Good God, Cripple on the top floor and a murder down below? It defies understanding. Our visitor stood up, the wall lights playing on his face in an eerie glow. Yes, that mystified everyone for years. That's why Greg was never brought to trial. I only found out myself a good few years later, and even then I wasn't real sure. He leaned against the table with a thoughtful and sombre expression on his gaunt, tired features. Almost with reluctance, he sat down again, his briefcase held firmly on his knees. He gave a long stare to all in the room before resuming. You see, like I said, the only other person who ever went up to the house was myself, delivering the post every day. There was always lots of mail, especially once young Gregory came home to live. He used to subscribe to a lot of book clubs. After all, there was precious else he could do but read. And then he also subscribed to magazines, as well as keeping in touch with old friends. It was pathetic, really seeing him laboriously learning to write again with his left hand. Sometimes I used to rewrite the addresses for him, but he got quite good in the end. Morrissey looked as if he was about to ask another question and sat forward expectantly. Thinking better of it, he motioned for the story to continue, his unasked question being answered almost immediately. The police checked me out too, of course, in the normal extent of their inquiries. Once they knew the exact time of the murder, we all had to try and trace exactly where we had been. But in my case, it was hard to pinpoint exact times you make deliveries. The funny thing was, once they started asking me for an alibi, I couldn't remember if I'd been up to the house that morning or not. I guessed I had, because when I went to check, there was no mail for them, and like I said, on most days you could depend on stuff for Gregory, let alone the usual bills and like. So I must have been there. Anyway, Greg was the only one with a motive, without an alibi, and in the house at the time of the murder. But then, then I got to thinking. There was something in the change of voice that made everyone sit up even more intently as he repeated himself slowly. I got to thinking. Even though we all knew Greg must have done it, the only person who could have done it was me. He shook his head sorrowfully. Oh yes, I'd been questioned all right, and even given a lie test. Though they were pretty crude in those days, and my fingerprints were found everywhere as you'd expect, what with me in and out helping with the young lad. They hadn't found any prints at all on the weapon, so it was assumed that the murderer had worn gloves. And what possible motive did I have? I was just a postman. I had nothing to gain. Didn't even argue with the old man, or ever had. Though like most others, I never really liked him. No, it was a real puzzler. So after a few weeks of the boys in blue foraging around, asking questions and the like, Well, everything went back to normal, until... His voice dropped almost to a whisper. After a long pause, he said... Until, one day, a few years later, just after Gregory and his mother had packed up and gone to Noosa, I was in Gregory's bedroom, helping Mrs Dawson clear up some of the personal effects to send on to the fancy nursing home he had moved into, when I found the clue. Two clues, as a matter of fact. The first thing I found, which came as a great shock, was a pair of my old gloves, ones I hadn't seen in a long time. 
Oh, no doubt, they were mine. Had my name sewn inside on one of those old-fashioned tags. I even recognised my mother's writing. Couldn't think how they got there, till I remembered my mother was friendly with Mrs Dawson and had probably handed them over as ideal for cleaning silver. Strange to find them there after all those years, tucked away, back in a drawer. But if you think about it, it was hard for Gregory to dispose of things without people knowing, I mean... The old man took his time before continuing. You could tell he was under great strain. It was hard for Gregory to dispose of things without people knowing. I I mean, I also found out what was in those brown paper parcels I had been delivering all those years. You remember Gregory had been in show business for a while, on the road with different variety acts? Well, he had been in correspondence with a fellow by the name of Hadrian the Great. Hypnotist fellow he was. He used to be famous for making people do things they wouldn't normally do, made quite an act of it, and had written lots of books on the subject, including a series in one of those positive thinking magazines. Which brings me to the point I started with. We knew who was responsible, but see, it just wasn't the same person who did it. The room was heavy with silence. Then Morris's voice boomed slowly and carefully with underlying excitement. Let me get this straight. What you are suggesting is that the young lad hypnotise you so that you do the murder for him. That's about it. But that's not possible, surely. I mean, don't they say that hypnotised people never do anything against their natural instincts? Some do, yes, but there are plenty who would disagree with that. Anyway, that's what's so special about this Adrian fellow. Apparently he could. Look, as far as I know, I'm not a murderer by intent. But let's face it, I know I'm capable. My time in Vietnam proved that. I'm more concerned with who would be charged and how guilty are they when they weren't even aware they had done it. Morrissey stared back thoughtfully. Beats me, was the only response. Never came across anything like that in all the years I was working. I guess it just depends on the judge and the jury. Looking at his watch, our storyteller stood up with a resolute air of finality. Right, I'm just wondering. I've been counting. There are just 12 of you in the room that have been listening. If you were on the jury, how would you all vote? The club members looked at each other sheepishly, stunned at the frank and direct question and not prepared to be decision makers. A few nervous coughs could be heard, and a couple began talking between themselves in whispers. Hmm, just as I thought, divided among yourselves. That's how I've been for the last 15 years. Couldn't make up my mind if I was guilty or not. But I just can't take the strain any longer. I reckon at my age, I've got nothing to lose. So I'm on my way to the Brisbane Police Station now. He stood up. No doubt that this time it was final. He shook hands with Morrissey, who was still transfixed to his seat. Walking towards the door, he looked around and gave a grim smile. Keep tuned in to the news. I guess we'll all find out soon enough. You have been listening to The Enigma Variation. Written and produced and performed by Brianda Cross, Trevor Bell and John Cross. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes or your favorite platform and either give us a like or a review. It would be much appreciated. Thank you.